Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 23rd, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight, Melissa and I are in southeast Wisconsin, almost to Oshkosh, not quite, and about an hour above Milwaukee. We had just met many excellent brethren last week at Clifton Emmerheiser's house over the last week and, and in Indiana, and, and we feel very blessed for the people that we were able to have fellowship with. When we depart from here, on Sunday, I believe, we will be heading for Arkansas. Last week, presenting Part 7 of this series, I had made some extemporaneous remarks in response to Jack Moore's claim that Satan is not mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. His claim is not true, and Satan is indeed mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, only by another name. Because Yahweh God chose to keep certain things secret from the foundation of the world, as Christ himself professed in Matthew chapter 13, we cannot imagine that Genesis is a complete revelation of everything which happened during the ages of creation. Saying that, Christ informed us that the devil had planted tares in the field shortly after Yahweh God had planted the wheat. But we do not learn that the serpent of Genesis 3 is Satan until we get to Revelation chapter 12. That is why we were granted the revelation that the truth of Yahweh and man would be completed in Yahshua Christ, who was both God and man. In Matthew chapter 13, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, we find that the devil sowed tares among the wheat, and that those tares are the children of the devil, who were sown among the children of God. In Revelation chapter 12, we are assisted in our identification of this same devil as that old serpent in the Garden of Eden. So if tares were sown among the wheat at the beginning, appearing nearly as soon as the wheat had sprouted, if we read the parable carefully, and we have a parable in Genesis chapter 3 of sexual seduction and the result of two opposing seeds. Then we see that Cain and Abel are of two opposing natures. But in that same account, we also see that there was an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is distinguished from a tree of life. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil can only be every plant which Yahweh did not plant, which Christ informs us shall be rooted up. That is why the serpent is representative of that tree. And that is why, in the end of the revelation, after the victory of Christ in his revenge against all of his enemies, there is only one tree left. There is no more tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is only the tree of life. And it bears twelve fruits the tribes of the children of Israel. In the parables of the gospel, these two trees are represented by various 
different allegories as sheep and goats, as wheat and tares, as sons and bastards, as those going into the lake of fire and those entering into the city of God. If we do not divide the the word of God correctly, when the bridegroom knocks at the door, we may find ourselves among the bastards and left out of the party. Now we shall present Clifton Emma Heiser's special notice to all who deny two seed line, part eight. And Clifton says this is a continuation in a series of papers proclaiming that we have an enemy. It is unpleasant enough that we must live under the political, religious, and monetary systems of the enemy. But it is intolerable, while all this is happening, to have distracting, booing detractors on the sidelines, proclaiming that there is no enemy, that somehow they, the Jews, and Clifton reminds us here in a in a parenthetical remark of Revelation chapter 2 verse 9 and Revelation chapter 3 verse 9, that somehow they, the Jews, are simply ordinary people who happen to go bad. I don't know how those gainsaying disputants discount the fact that they and their continued lineage remain corrupt generation after generation for thousands of years. It is quite obvious that the Jews have retained an inbred genetic trait which is built into their very being, clearly inherited from their ancestors. Thus there are two genetic peoples at war with one another. According to the declaration of Genesis 3.15 and this war will not terminate until one side or the other is completely destroyed. At the moment, our side is speedily going down to defeat. When I first found Christian identity, I actually contemplated the concept of what is called two-seed line for at least a year, examining it from every angle. It was not that I was skeptical, but rather my approach was to look at all of the identity claims and arguments with healthy criticism. Because if anything was true, I wanted to be able to prove it to myself and eventually to others and prove it empirically rather than merely hypothetically. By the second or third year of my studies, I was confident that I could prove two seed line, two seed line through scripture. But that alone may always be argued and can only be considered hypothetical. However, with the historical observation that Clifton refers to here, with an understanding of the behavioral patterns which the Jews and the other non-white races have displayed generation after generation, the truth is indeed proven empirically. There is no conflict between the word of Yahweh our God, the creation of God, and what we observe happening every day in the real world. Two seed line, if I have to call it that.
2C line is certainly true. And there is no other way to properly look at the scripture or at the world itself. But one of the first things which the naysayers claim is that white people, our Adamic race, can do evil just as much as the Jews and the non-whites do evil. That is true. Anyone who follows the carnal mind can fall into the most grievous sin. However, only the Adamic race has the spirit of Yahweh our God. White people can do evil like everyone else. But when sufficient white people follow that spirit rather than following the flesh, the kingdom of heaven materializes on earth. All people can do evil, but only white people collectively have the ability to do good, that is, to build entire societies based upon the rule of God's law, to systematically care for and nurture one another, young and old, strong and weak, in communities where the spirit of the law of Yahweh prevails. No other race has ever so consistently exhibited the fruits of the Spirit of God. And we are known, therefore, by our fruits. Whites have built one advanced society after another, regardless of the environment or geographical location in which they dwell. Left to their own devices, the Jews, as well as all of the non-white, non-Adamic races, only fall into decay, death, and destruction. All people can be bad, but only whites can build the kingdom of heaven. Clifton continues, in reference to history and the Jews, and he says, evidently the anti-seedliners have never read Josephus at Wars Book 2, Chapter 8. Josephus makes it quite clear that the Pharisees and Sadducees were essentially non-Israelites by birth. Let's now read this passage. And Clifton, quoting Josephus, says, For there are three philosophical sects among the Judeans, the followers of the first of whom are the Pharisees, of the second the Sadducees, and the third sect, which pretends to a severer discipline, are called Essenes. These last are Judah by birth, and seem to have a greater affection for one another than the other sects have. In response to that, Clifton says, it would appear that of these three sects mentioned, only the Essenes could claim to be pure-blooded Israelites, that many, perhaps a majority of the Pharisees and Sadducees were neither true Israelites nor of the true tribe of Judah. Why didn't Josephus mention the Pharisees and Sadducees as being Judah by birth? I know, says Clifton, that in John chapter 8, verses 33 and 37, it is apparent from that rendition that the scribes and Pharisees could possibly be true Israelites. Sure, the Arabs can claim Abraham is their father. We know that also that the Jews of Messiah's day had absorbed Edomite blood and therefore could claim both Abraham and Isaac as their fathers. 
the Shelonite Judahites could even claim an affinity with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. Yet that doesn't make them of the true tribe of Judah. And this is probably the first passage in the writings of Josephus, which Clifton had cited in reference to the identity of the Judeans, or Jews. I prefer, I myself prefer to call the Judeans of the post-apostolic era Jews, because by that time, if they were still identified as Judeans, then they were very likely of those who continued to reject Christ and the people from whom the modern Jews are descended. If Josephus insists that out of the several sects of Judea, only the Essenes were Judah by birth, then it is fully evident that the words of Christ are true, where he said to the scribes and Pharisees, that ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twice fold more the child of hell than yourselves. The scribes and Pharisees must have therefore been converting people who were not Israelites by birth into Judaism. So we see the truth of Christ where he later told his adversaries that ye believe not because you are not of my sheep. This conversion of proselytes will be a major theme in this portion of Clifton's discussion this evening. And yes, if it's coming out on the recording and on the podcast, we have a train in the background. There are trains running very close by here. There is plenty of evidence in Scripture that the Edomites had moved into the land of Judah and Israel after the deportations which we see as early as Ezekiel chapter 35, and that they had eventually come to adopt what is called Judaism, which we see in Romans chapter 9. However, Josephus assures us that the interpretations of Scripture in this manner are correct, and Josephus has corroboration from Strabo of Cappadocia, who attested more than once in his geography that in Judea there were both Edomites and Judeans and others who all shared in the same customs. Later in his papers, Clifton would begin quoting at length from Josephus's Antiquities Book 13 in reference to the actual historical descriptions of the conversion of the Edomites in the time of John Hyrcanus and his son, Alexander Janius. But here Clifton continues from another perspective. From the religious perspective, to demonstrate that the people of Judea certainly were converting non-Judeans into being Israelites through baptism. Clifton says, for the evidence that the Jews are not who they claim to be, I will now quote from a commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica by John Lightfoot, volume 2, pages 7 through 9. And quoting Lightfoot, 
Common persons, as to the priesthood, such whose fathers indeed were sprung from priests, but their mothers unfit to be admitted to the priest's marriage bed, such as were born in wedlock, but that which was unlawful, bastards, such as came of a certain mother, but of an uncertain father, Lightfoot is listing different types of people who were being admitted not only as Israelites, but also into the priesthood at this time. Such as were gathered up out of the streets, whose fathers and mothers were uncertain. And here Clifton inserted a little note pointing us to Ezra chapters 9 and 10. And he continues to quote Lightfoot. A defiled generation indeed, and therefore brought up out of Babylon in this common sink, according to the opinion of the Hebrews, that the whole Jewish seed still remaining there might not be polluted by it. Therefore he brought them to Jerusalem, where care might be taken by the Sanhedrin, fixed there, that the legitimate might not marry with the illegitimate. And I believe that's a reference to Ezra's returning with priests that he had gotten from Cassithia, from a place other than Babylon, and brought them to Jerusalem and sorted out the bastards from the sons in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. And continuing to quote from Lightfoot, Clifton says, How great a care ought there to be in the families of the pure blood to preserve themselves untouched and clean from this impure sink and to lay up among themselves genealogical scrolls from generation to generation as faithful witnesses and lasting monuments of their legitimate stock and free blood. Here a complaint and a story in this case and he's quoting the Talmud, we must be reminded, R. Jokinen said, By the temple it is in our hand to discover who are not of pure blood in the land of Israel. But what shall I do when the chief men of this generation lie hid or hidden? That is, when they are not of pure blood, and yet we must not declare so much openly concerning them. We can't imagine our Jokinen, the Talmudist writings, to be sincere according to the law. He is actually promoting compromise in these words. Lightfoot says he was of the same opinion with Rabbi Isaac, who set an early Talmudic writer, who said a family of the polluted blood that lies hid, let it lie hid. Abbe also said, We have learned this also by tradition, the traditions of the elders, the traditions found in the early books of the Talmud, that there was a certain family called the family of Beth Zarifa beyond Jordan, and a son of Zion removed it away. And Lightfoot makes the note that the gloss is that some eminent man, by a public proclamation, declared it impure. 
But he caused another which was such, meaning that was impure, to come near. And there was another which the wise man would not manifest, meaning that the rabbis of the earliest periods of the Talmud were not making manifest all of the bastards. They were letting many of the bastards slide. And to us it seems that these early rabbis were certainly rationalizing the bastards, something which Jews have always tended to do in one way or another. And returning to Clifton's citations from Lightfoot, he says that when it especially lay upon the Sanhedrin, settled at Jerusalem, to preserve pure families, as much as in them lay pure still, and when they prescribed canons of preserving the legitimation of the people, which you may see in those things that follow at the place alleged, there was some necessity to lay up public records of pedigrees with them, whence it might be known what family was pure and what family defiled. Hence that of Simon ben Aze deserves our notice. I saw, he says, a genealogical scroll in Jerusalem in which it was written, Anne, a name which was not completed, a bastard of a strange wife. Observe that even a bastard was written in their public books of genealogy, that he might be known to be a bastard, and that the purer families might take heed of the defilement of the seed. And Clifton then comments in response to Lightfoot's remarks, and he says, It should be obvious from this that the Judeans, which returned from the Babylonian captivity up until the time of the Messiah, were not keeping their family genetics pure. Can you see now how far off the mark Ted Wheeland was in his book Eve, Did She or Didn't She?, when he erroneously tried to prove that the scribes and Pharisees were true Israelites by making the following statements. And Clifton quotes Wheeland on page 68 of the book, Seedliners claim that because the Pharisees and their progenitors were charged with the murders of all the righteous from Abel to Zacharias, they cannot be Israelites but must be Canaanites of the seed of Satan, the truth is that because the Pharisees, and this is the truth according to Ted Wheeland, who is lying, the truth is that because the Pharisees and their forefathers were indicted for the murder of the righteous martyrs, they cannot be Canaanites, but instead must be Israelites. And he is indeed off the mark. And then on page 94, Wheeland said, The seed liners teach that the Pharisees were Canaanites of the seed of Satan, Whereas Matthew chapter 3, chapter 27, John chapter 7, 8, Acts chapter 4 and 7 declared that the Pharisees were Judahites of the seed line of Jacob, Israel. And I would certainly ascertain that Ted Wheeland is lying indeed. Clifton says, while Ted R. Wheeland is off the mark, he is not entirely wrong. However, his error is as serious to the point of disaster. To clear up the matter, I will refer again to a commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica by John Lightfoot on volume 2, page 78. 
And Lightfoot says there was indeed a certain remnant among them, meaning among the Judeans, to be gathered by Christ. And when that was gathered, the rest of the nation was delivered over to everlasting perdition. This is that remnant of the apostle, Romans 11.5, which was then when he writ those things, which then was to be gathered before the destruction of that nation. And I must say that in Romans chapter 11, Paul was only, he was only continuing a theme where he said in Romans chapter 9, that I speak the truth among the anointed, I lie not, my conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit, that grief for me is great, and distress incessant in my heart. For I have prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh, not the bastards, but the sons, those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons, and the honor and the covenants and the legislation and the service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh, being overall blessed of Yahweh for the ages, truly. So Paul shows us that he's only concerned with his kinsmen according to the flesh, those who actually descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he goes on to say, Truly, not, however, that the word of Yahweh has failed, since not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel, nor because they are offspring of Abraham all children, but in Isaac will your offspring be called. That is to say, the children of the flesh, these are not children of Yahweh, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. And Paul, of course, is talking about the promises, which very explicitly in the book of Genesis were passed down from Abraham to Isaac, where Ishmael and the children of Keturah were omitted, and then from Isaac down to Jacob. Paul goes on to explain that promise, that it was carried down from Sarah to Rebekah, and then Paul went on to contrast Jacob and Esau, vessels of mercy and vessels of destruction. He had said that not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel, in reference to the land and the man, Jacob Israel, because many of those from the land in those days were of Esau, Edomites, who had been converted en masse into Judaism in the days of John Hyrcanus and Alexander Janius. There were also many other disqualified individuals who were converted as proselytes over the years. Furthermore, in this passage of Romans chapter 9, Paul once again exhibited the racial exclusivity of the New Covenant, where he attested that the children of the promises to Sarah and Rebekah were to be counted as the seed of Abraham. This is also a refutation of the replacement theology taught in today's denominational churches. Ted Wheeland and the other clowns of his ilk, while they understand the migrations of ancient Israel, and their identity in the white nations of the modern world, nevertheless deny 
the racial exclusivity of the covenants. Imagining somehow that all, whosoever, of any race may come to Christ. However, that is not what Paul says when he spoke of whosoever. And Wieland, as well as the denominational churches, consistently remove Paul's words from their context. Wieland is basically a universalist, and for that reason, he will be forever blind to the truth of 2C line. Clifton continues, and he says, commenting on Lightfoot's citations, I am sure that Messiah was not gathering an accumulation of bastards, which the Pharisees and Sadducees were for the most part. The anti-seedliners really have a problem with Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 4.1. For if Cain was the son of Adam, there wouldn't have been any difference between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. If such a thing were true, which it isn't, we might as well invite the descendants of Cain into our churches and identity meetings. Recently, John Hagee, and this is around 2002, John Hagee had about ten Jews on a platform of his church. Many seminaries now have Jewish professors and advisors. Insight on the Scriptures, in Volume 2, pages 887 and 889, says this about the serpent's seed. And Clifton quotes, Jesus identified the Jewish religious leaders of his day as a part of the serpent's seed, saying to them, Serpents, offspring of vipers, that word offspring being genemata, or generated ones. How are you to flee from the judgment of Gehenna? Matthew 23.33 And then speaking of the enmity between the two seeds. The great serpent, Satan, the devil, has produced seed that has manifested in the bitterest enmity towards those who have served God with faith, like Abraham, as the Bible record abundantly testifies. Satan has tried to block or hinder the development of the woman's seed. And Clifton has always endeavored over the years to illustrate whatever biblical truth can be found in rather mainstream commentaries and Bible dictionaries. But he has also frequently resorted to much older publications than are commonly available today. Usually, these citations which he makes certainly do support our contentions concerning two seed line. However, it is also quite clear that the commentators are often divided against themselves, as many universalist passages are also found in the same works. So we must be careful. Clifton continues and says, This is what John Lightfoot has to say about Matthew Chapter 3, verse 7, where John the Baptist called the Pharisees and Sadducees vipers. In his commentary in volume 2 on pages 77 and 78, and Clifton quotes Lightfoot who says, Not so much the seed of Abraham, which he boasts of, as the seed of the serpent, a nation and offspring diametrically opposite and an enemy to that seed of the woman, and which was to bruise his heel. Hence, not without ground, 
it is concluded that the nation was rejected and given over to a reprobate sense even before the coming of Christ. They were not only a generation, but an offspring of vipers, serpents sprung from serpents. Nor is it a wonder that they were rejected by God, when they had long since rejected God and God's word by their traditions. There was indeed a certain remnant among them to be gathered by Christ, and when that remnant was gathered, the rest of the nation was delivered over to everlasting perdition. And again on page 83 of the same book, John Lightfoot says the following, The war proclaimed of old in Eden between the serpent and the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, now takes place. When that promised seed of the woman comes forth into the field, being initiated by baptism and anointed by the Holy Spirit under the public office of his ministry to fight with the old serpent and at last to bruise his head and since the devil was always a most impudent spirit now he takes upon him a more hardened boldness than ever even of waging war with him whom he knew to be the son of God because from that ancient proclamation of this war, he knew well enough that he should bruise his heel. And of course we would say that this war had really been playing out throughout all of history. Its, its epitome was in the crucifixion of Christ by the Edomite Jews in Jerusalem. But this war between the two seeds, collective seeds, has been going on throughout all history and is still not completed. Clifton continues. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 7, chapter 12 verse 34, and chapter 23 verse 33, both John the Baptist and Joshua Christ called the Pharisees and Sadducees a generation of vipers. And in Matthew chapter 12 verse 39, Yahshua spoke of them as an evil and adulterous generation. Adulterous meaning mixed or impure. And of course we would interpret the word generation in all of those cases to refer to a race. Clifton says the following are remarks from some various commentaries. And quoting Adam Clark's commentary, abridged by Ralph Earle an evil and adulterous generation, or race of people. Our Lord terms the Jews an adulterous race. And in the same commentary on another page, O generation of vipers, a terribly expressive speech, a serpentine brood from a serpentine stock, as their fathers were, so were they, children of the wicked one and quoting Matthew Henry's commentary from volume 5. The title he gives them is O Generation of Vipers. Christ gave them the same title. Henry referring to Matthew 3 and Christ giving them the same title in Matthew chapters 12 and 23. They were as vipers, though specious yet venomous and poisonous, and full of malice and enmity to everything that was good, 
They were a viperous brood, the seed and offspring of such as had been of the same spirit. It was bred in the bone with them. They gloried in it, that they were the seed of Abraham. But John showed them that they were the serpent's seed. And Henry refers us to compare Genesis 3.15 with the words of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. They were the serpent seed of their father the devil, John 8.44, and that's Matthew Henry. They were a viperous gang. They were all alike, though enemies to one another, yet confederate in mischief. Note, a wicked generation is a generation of vipers, and they ought to be told so. And then quoting Matthew Henry again, he condemns the demand as the language of an evil and adulterous generation. Matthew 12.39, I believe. He fastens the charge, not only on the scribes and Pharisees, but the whole nation of the Jews. They were all like their leaders, a seed and succession of evildoers. They were an evil generation indeed, that not only hardened themselves against the conviction of Christ's miracles, but set themselves to abuse him and put contempt on his miracles. They were an adulterous generation, as an adulterous brood, so miserably degenerated that Abraham and Israel acknowledged them not. According Matthew Henry, one more time, they were a generation of vipers. John the Baptist had called them so in Matthew 3.7. And they were still the same. For can the Ethiopian change his skin? The people looked upon the Pharisees as a generation of saints. But Christ calls them a generation of vipers, the seed of the serpent, that had an enmity to Christ in his gospel. Now what could be expected from a generation of vipers. But that which is poisonous and malignant, can the viper be otherwise than venomous? And it seems to me that none of these commentators really put together the entire story, the historical with the circumstantial, which is found in these pages of Scripture. So many readers continue to insist that words such as seed, race, or generation, or offspring, or children, among others, all have some signification other than their literal meanings. Therefore, even these excellent comments, which we have just read, may be misunderstood. Lightfoot explained, that the Judeans had many unqualified proselytes among them, even describing them as illegitimate bastards. But he still did not quite put the entire story together into a consistent narrative. The true meaning of these passages is only realized upon examining the historical reasons behind Paul's explanation in Romans chapter 9 or the attestation of Christ in Revelation chapter 2 verse 9 or chapter 3 verse 9 regarding people who claimed to be Judeans but were not 
but were really of the synagogue of Satan. In reference to those who say they are Judeans and are not, as opposed to the true Judeans, those of Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, who were actually of the children of Israel, that righteous remnant of which these commentators speak. Those historical reasons are found in the pages of Flavius Josephus. Once it is seen that many of these Judeans were indeed actually Edomites, who usurped Judea upon the rise of Herod, only then does the entire truth begin to become manifest. The commentators identified the adversaries of Christ as a wicked seed, but did not thoroughly explain how they were a wicked seed. So the meaning of the word seed itself is even often convoluted. Clifton once wrote an article addressing that problem, asserting that there is no such thing as spiritual sperm, and that assertion is true. As for this word adulterous, the Greek word moikalis, Strong's number 3428. Many commentators would also claim that it also refers only to some sort of spiritual adultery. Yet, in some of the papers at Christogenia, for instance, in the opening segment of our recent commentary on Paul's epistle to Titus, we have shown from two ancient Greek sources that the related word moikos, a noun form of the adjective moikalis, as well as the related verb moikuo, were used to describe race mixing or the state of being of mixed race. The Greek geographer Strabo of Cappadocia used the word moikos twice of race mixers in his geography in Book 16, where he stated of certain tribes that the penalty for an adulterer is death, but among them only the person of the other race is considered the adulterer. So we see that adultery had to do with race and not merely with marriage. Likewise, in Aristotle's Animalia, or the History of Animals, the verb moikuo was used to describe birds which were mixed and crossed with each other. Ancient Judea was indeed an adulterous nation because the people had mingled themselves with the Edomites after converting them to Judaism, as Josephus describes, and as Paul of Tarsus explained in his epistle to the Romans. For this, the entire nation was adulterous. Judah, as it prophesies in Malachi chapter 2, Judah married the daughter of a strange god. The Judeans wed themselves to the Edomites and the other Canaanites of the land only two or three hundred years after Malachi wrote those words as a prophecy. While, Clint, while Clifton first referred to the historical absorption of the Edomites, as early as 
his tenth watchman's teaching letter in February of 1999, long before I had made his acquaintance even. For now, he continues under the subtitle, Jewish Proselytizing. And he says this is another aspect which should be delved into concerning the cursed Jewish nation of the time of the Messiah. Without this understanding, it is difficult to comprehend the conditions surrounding the Jewish nation at that period. Once this information is understood and grasped, a very different view will be perceived. This is a topic which has not been addressed at any length by the clergy of nominal churchianity, or, for that matter, among those who understand the Israel identity message. It is paramount that we understand the complexities of that period. For if we don't, we simply cannot fathom the elements which were coming into play during that time. Once we comprehend this, we will not be prone to make ludicrous statements such as those which Ted Wheeland has spewed out or vomited out. And Prop Clifton there cites three passages from Proverbs and from 2 Peter in relation to Ted Wheeland. And those three passages included, I won't repeat them all, they included Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. There we read, As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. And we would agree, that certainly does describe Ted Wheeland. Several times over the past few years, I have endeavored to initiate a dialogue with Wheeland, both in emails and on social media, specifically Facebook. And each and every time, he has fled from me, shunning any possibility for discussion. So, in relation to this proselytizing in first century Judea, Clifton continues and says, I will first introduce the general story and then present the documentation. First, let's consider the scripture where Messiah condemned the Jews for their proselytizing. At Matthew 23:15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. And of course, the word for hell there is Gehenna, meaning the fiery trials of this life, where they were, where they will all ultimately be destroyed. In Matthew chapter 3, Clifton says, We are told of John the Baptist and his endeavor to prepare the way for the Messiah by conversion and baptizing. It seems here, according to the story, the Pharisees and Sadducees came and inquired of John what he was doing. Forthrightly, John informed the Jews he didn't baptize vipers. Why, Clifton asks, were the Pharisees and Sadducees so interested in what John the Baptist was doing? 
Many may be unaware of the fact that the Pharisees and Sadducees were also baptizing their converts. The requirement to become a Jewish proselyte was first to be circumcised. And when the wound was healed, then second, the candidate was baptized in what they call a Mishnah, a ritual bath, a large, a very large tub, sort of like the size of a hot tub. The Jews considered that when their candidate went down into the water, he was a heathen, and when he came back up, he was an Israelite. This is fantastic, for a non-Israelite could be baptized thousands of times, and it would not make him an Israelite. And just of whom, of just whom, I'm sorry, Clifton's verbiage is a a little awkward there, and of just whom were these Jews baptizing and making proselytes? Many were of the seven Canaanite nations, and to that we would say, as well as the Edomites who had been converted en masse in the second century B.C. Now some excerpts from pages 55 to 63 from a commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica, Volume 2, by John Lightfoot. And quoting Lightfoot, Clifton says, Whensoever any heathen will betake himself and be joined to the covenant of Israel, even though Paul said that no man could make additions to the covenant, the Pharisees evidently didn't understand that, and place himself under the wings of divine majesty, and take the yoke of the law upon him, the law which was only given to Israel. Voluntary circumcision, baptism, and oblation are required. That was a common axiom. No man is a proselyte until he be circumcised and baptized, because none becomes a proselyte without circumcision and baptism. According to the judgment or right, of the Sanhedrin. If with a proselyte his sons and his daughters are made proselytes also, that which is done by their father redounds to their good. A heathen woman, if she is made a proselytess when she is now big with child, the child needs not baptism. And that's quite incredible. For the baptism of his mother serves him for him for baptism. If an Israelite takes a Gentile child or finds a Gentile infant and baptizes him in the name of a proselyte, behold, he is a proselyte. First, you see, baptism is inseparably joined to the circumcision of proselytes. And now John Lightfoot is giving us his assessment of what he had read in the Talmud. Then he says, There was indeed some little distance of time, for they were not baptized till the pain of circumcision was healed, because water might be injurious to the wound. But certainly baptism ever followed. Secondly, 
observing from these things which had been spoken, how very known and frequent the use of baptism was among the Jews. The reason appears very easy why the Sanhedrin, by their messengers, inquired not of John concerning the reason of baptism, but concerning the authority of the baptizer. Not what baptism meant, but from where he had a license to baptize. John one twenty five. For the admission of a proselyte was reckoned no light matter. Proselytes are dangerous to Israel, like the itch, and evidently Lightfoot is referring to verbiage which is found in the Talmud. When a proselyte was to be circumcised, they first asked him concerning the sincerity of his conversion to Judaism whether he offered not himself to proselytism for the obtaining of riches, for fear, or for the love of some Israelite woman. As soon as he grows whole of the wound of circumcision, they bring him to baptism, and being placed in the water, they again instruct him in some weightier and in some lighter commands of the law, which being heard, he plunges himself and comes up And behold, he is an Israelite in all things. But a proselyte was baptized only into the washing off of that Gentile pollution, nor only thereby to be transplanted into the religion of the Jews, but that, by the most accurate right of translation that could possibly be, he might so pass into an Israelite meaning that the Jews actually believed that their circumcision and baptism transformed a non-Israelite into an Israelite. Miraculously, just like the Catholic Church thinks that it could baptize squat monster babies and make Christians out of them. That he might so pass into being an Israelite, that being married to an Israelite woman, he might produce free and legitimate seed, and an undefiled offspring. Hence, servants that were taken into a family were baptized, and servants also that were to be made free, not so much because they were defiled with heathen uncleanness, as that, by that right, becoming Israelites in all respects, they might be more fit to match or mate with Israelites, and their children be accounted as Israelites. And hence the sons of proselytes, in following generations, were circumcised indeed, but not baptized. They were circumcised that they might take upon themselves the obligation of the law, but they needed not baptism, because they were already Israelites. The baptism of proselytes was the bringing over of Gentiles into the Jewish religion. And of course, Clifton made an objection to the idea that those sons of proselytes could could actually ever be Israelites. And here John Lightfoot has described the attitude of the Jews from the earliest post-Christian writings available, those of the Talmud. And we have no reason to believe 
that the rabbis of the time of Christ were any different just a short time before the earliest writings of the Talmud. The baptism of John was a matter of prophecy. In Malachi chapter 3 it speaks of a messenger to prepare the way before the Lord, or Yahshua Christ. And it says that that messenger shall purify the sons of Levi. So we see a prophecy of the baptism of John. Yahshua Christ himself was also baptized by John. And those who know the law should recognize the cleansing of both priests and Passover lamb required in law was in this manner symbolically fulfilled as Christ is the Lamb of God. This was the transcendental aspect of the baptism of John. But in the practical aspect of John's baptism, John was cleansing people who were already Israelites as a symbol that they would repent of their sins and be prepared to turn to Christ as he was about to begin his ministry and the announcement of the gospel. However, the Pharisees and Sadducees baptized for an entirely different reason, to convert non-Israelites into Israelites, as if such a thing were ever possible. So it should be evident that the Jews developed the concept of spiritual sperm, and the later Catholic Church adopted the baptism of the Jews for that same purpose. That baptism must be rejected by true Christians. Clifton comments on John Lightfoot's description of Jewish baptism. You can see from this, things at that period were not at all like we are led to believe. The people of that Jewish nation had so corrupted themselves genetically, there were hardly any pure-blooded Israelites left among them. Here you have the facts laid out before you, so that it will save you from a lot of homework on your part. All you have to do is verify them. It would appear the time has come for some who follow the teachings of anti-seedliners, such as the likes of Ted Wieland, to wake up and get the wax out of their ears, or let the bull out of the stall. Here is substantial evidence that anti-seedliners are not as informed as they ought to be. Not only are the clergy of today blind to the conditions of that nation, but we have those in Israel identity who have been trained in the Judeo-Churchianity theological centers who aren't much better. And Ted Wieland, the former rodeo cowboy, is of course one of them. Now he's a rodeo clown. Clifton says it takes a lot of time and effort, sweat and blood, to put research like this together. Furthermore, if one cannot see the parallel between what is going on today with all of the mixed racial marriages, just as the Judeans of that day were taking strange wives and strange husbands, one has to be blind. They were taking others in marriage who were often descended from out of the seven Canaanite nations. There were some pure-blooded Benjamites who were still in Galilee, from whom Yahshua took all of his disciples except one, and I would add, or perhaps two, since Matthew may not have been from Benjamin.
as there were some Essenes in Judea, or real Judahites in Judea, and even this Clifton oversimplifies a little. Many other true Judahites also lived in Judea. For example, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were Judahites living in Judea, and many of the Pharisees with whom Christ himself had dined and lodged were, of course, true Israelites, or we can't expect that Christ would have been dining and lodging with them. Continuing with Clifton, the anti-sea liners seem to completely overlook the commission of the Messiah in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that of destroying the works of the devil. The Apostle John wrote, He to commit sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Clifton says, By coming when he did, Yahshua was there in the midst of the genetic descendants of Satan, through Cain, who were quite aptly called vipers. Yahshua Messiah himself called them vipers, as did John the Baptist. Thus, Messiah was in the realm of the geographic seat where the devils lived. If the devil's headquarters had been anywhere else in the world, he would have been there. If he was going to destroy the devil's works, he had to be where the devils thrived, which he was. Paul of Tarsus, in response to what Clifton said here, Paul of Tarsus was speaking of Jerusalem when he wrote to the Thessalonians around 51 A.D., And he told them that Satan was seated in the temple of God, pretending for himself to be a god. And Paul was speaking, ostensibly, of the Edomite Jews in Judea who had taken over the high priesthood. Although they were spread throughout the society, the Edomite Jews were using Judaism as the source of authority and legitimacy for their wicked deeds, and Jerusalem became their capital. It is interesting to note that two decades after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, the revelation was given to John by Christ, and Pergamos was named as the location of Satan's seat since the Jews were forced out of Jerusalem. Clifton continues speaking in reference to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. If you will check the next verse, verse 9, you will notice that whether one is a genetic son of the devil or a genetic son of Yahweh depends on the sperm or seed. It speaks of the children of Yahweh and says, His sperma remains in him. However, the anti-seed liners insist that sperma is spiritual. Let's now look at Matthew Henry's commentary, which says this on this passage in volume 6. From the discrimination between the children of God and the children of the devil, they have their distinct characters. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, referring to 1 John 3.10 in the world, according to the old distinction, 
There are the seed, sperma, of God, and the seed, sperma, of the serpent. And he belongs to the party and interest and kingdom of the devil. It is he that is the author and patron of sin, and has been a practitioner of it, a tempter and instigator of it, even from the beginning of the world. The devil has designed and endeavored to ruin the work of God in this world. The Son of God has undertaken the holy war against him. It showed that he was the firstborn of the serpent's seed. Even he, the eldest, Cain, was of the wicked one, speaking in reference to Cain, of course, not in reference to Christ. He imitated and resembled the first wicked one, the devil. And even Matthew Henry did not explicitly specify that Cain was the seed of the serpent, because he was indeed the physical son of the devil. The demonstrably corrupt text of Genesis 4.1 has been a stumbling block to our people for many centuries. Clifton reads from one more commentary, a commentary on the Holy Bible by Matthew Poole, volume 3. And such a sinner, he says, is of the devil, as if he were born of him, were his child, really conformed to him, and having his sinning nature. Upon what was said, he reduces all men, each to their own family and father, concluding it manifest whither they belonged. He shows upon the grounds, before expressed, they who do not belong to God and his family, leaving it thence to be collected, since two fathers and families divide the world, to which they must be reckoned, i.e., they belong not to God, and consequently to that worst of fathers, in reference to John 8.44, who first, in general, do not do righteousness, the devil being the first sinner, they are his parents, his descendants, I'm sorry, which showed him to be of that wicked one, of the serpent's seed, so early was such seed sown, and so ancient the enmity between seed and seed. And we must add that men are not seed based on their actions. Rather, the seed from which they spring governs the behavior to which they must adjust. Christ did not say that the fruit is known by its tree. He said the tree is known by its fruit. The children of the devil do not have any inherent ability to do good, so that the kingdom of God may be built. Because they are inherently corrupt, the children of God may do evil, but they have an inherent ability to do his will when they follow the spirit and not the flesh. Others do not have that spirit in them to follow as his seed is not in them. The commentators came close to the ultimate truth, but fell just a little a little short of explaining the fact that seed is entirely and exclusively genetic. If one holds the mistaken belief that all of the Judeans of the time of Christ were Israelites, 
then one may be deceived into thinking that all men are equal and that sperm can be spiritual and that one's behavior can somehow dictate one's origin. But in truth, behavior does not dictate one's origin. And if a man could somehow change his behavior, that would certainly not change his parentage. Furthermore, there is more behind good and evil deeds than mere nature, as things such as perceptions and perspectives and motives or agendas must all be considered when evaluating why a man did good or evil. But it can be demonstrated historically that many, if not most, of the Judeans of the time of Christ were Edomites and not Israelites, and that the Edomites had usurped the government and the offices of the temple, and these were the adversaries of Christ. As he himself told them, Ye believe not, because you are not my sheep. He never said you are not my sheep, because you believe not. Then scripturally, we see that the history is verified in the words of Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 9, and of Christ himself in John chapter 8, Luke chapter 11, and in the Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. The Edomites descended from the seed of the serpent, where Esau had taken wives of the Canaanites, who were in turn mingled with the Kenites and the Rephaim, and they were the descendants of both Cain and the fallen angels. Being made evident in both scripture and in history, two seed line is proven to be true, both theoretically and empirically. The historical truth of two seed line continues to be fully evident in the actions of both Jews and white Europeans today, as the Jews, who are Satan collectively, gather all of the alien races, the other branches of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, against the camp of the saints. It's time that Ted Wheeland and all of those ass clowns who deny two seed line pull their heads out of the bull manure. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. We will be here tomorrow night with some sort of a topical discussion. I'm not sure exactly the entire list of topics yet, but there are a few pressing issues that we should address.